0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Richard Albert, head of capital investment sector for the UK government. Richard, big warm welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, much Connor. It's great to be on.
0: Uh, Richard, I was delighted to meet you down in Miami not too long ago, just before the Christmas when the weather was a lot nicer. <laughs> a fantastic week uh, meeting all the global stakeholders. What was your biggest takeaway from the week there?
1: I mean, I, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I think my biggest takeaway was just how huge um, football industry has become, and how diversified it has become. I mean, we had you know sessions at that conference on you know everything from player welfare to sports science to investing in clubs, media extracting more advertising revenue. Stadium and training facility design and construction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I just, it was, it was, it was fantastic. And it's amazing the 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 array of of speakers and attendees that that it attracts. And I mean, it's just what a what a great way to spend spend three days and nights. I have to say,
0: great excuse. Yeah, very important yeah. to include the nights there, Richard. And <laughs> I think it's it's very pertinent to what we're both doing in the field today, but. You know, as we begin, and as is opening tradition on the podcast, let's bring it back to the very start. Richard, could you please take us through your earliest football memory?
1: Well, given my age, we're going to be going way back. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I mean, I've had a love and passion for sport in general all my all my life. And I mean, in terms of background, I was born and raised in Boston, so in the US. Um, and my father introduced me to sport both playing and following uh, from, from an extremely young age. I mean, like two or three years old um, are my first memories of, of playing and starting to develop an interest in sport. And even my extended family, whenever we would kind of get together for, um, you know, family gatherings, I would always be in the room with the men, watching the games on the telly while my siblings and cousins would be elsewhere in the house you know, playing with toys or whatever. Um, but of course, you know, that was the the big four North American sports. So American football, baseball, hockey, basketball. For me, you know, soccer, football was was the first one that was sort of self-discovered. Um and my first memory, I, I think goes back to 1970. There was a it was a program on US sport called ABC's Wide World of Sports, and they showed Kind of, this is a great example of how far football has come in the U.S. They showed like little highlights of the 1970 World Cup final between Brazil and and Italy, which was kind of an iconic match in the history of football. And that and I was just really kind of enraptured by it. And uh, so you know I went to the library and I got a took a book out to learn the rules of, of of football and tried to take the lead on on on, on the school playground to. Organized pickup matches, you know, with my mates, which was an absolute disaster, probably like the, the highest instance of handballs ever called in a in a single match anywhere ever in the world. Um and, and, and by the sort of mid-70s, um on our on PBS, our our public broadcasting uh, channel, they started showing ITV's the big match from the previous weekend on on the following wednesday evening so for the first time i got to see english club football and just absolutely fell head over heels in love with it and um, and it was you know so information about it, it was so rare you know so scarce on the ground that i had to go to there was a news agent in harvard square called out of town news which basically did exactly as it said on the tin right it sold uh, newspapers and magazines from from around the world, and I would just kind of just buy up all the English football magazines I could find, you know, shoot, and 90 Minutes, and World Soccer in, in those days. Uh, and then, of course, around that time, it was the kind of peak of the old North American Soccer League, so my friends and I used to kind of take the subway and to, to watch the uh, New England team men, who were a uh, Boston team in the league at that time, and And of course, I had a chance to see some of the great players of that era like Franz Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto and Johann Nieskens um, playing in the league. Um, But it was really only when I moved to to, to Europe that kind of transformed everything for me. In um, 1988, I did part of my MBA studies in Madrid. So, I mean, I got to go to the Bernabeu. Real Madrid play, and I would, every day I would buy, you know, the daily Spanish um, sports newspapers, Marca and As, just to kind of, you know, um, brush up on my Spanish. Um, and then I moved to Europe permanently um, for, for work in 1990, and I was first in Slovakia, so I'd go see Slovan and Bratislava play, then I was in Brussels for a year and a half and became an Andalek supporter and used to go see them play home and away and then in 1993 moved to London and uh, always in my, in my 20 years living in London I always lived within walking distance of Stamford Bridge and so I think I arrived on Sunday uh, January 30th and then the next day went to a match at the bridge and hooked for life um you know long-term season ticket holder still a club member Still go to matches every single time. I'm 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 back in London and still follow them passionately to this day.
0: It's amazing how that sense of adventure from a young age, you know, preceded what was a global tour, really, and led to kind of a cross-pollination of experiences, which ultimately helped shape the trajectory of your career. And it's interesting speaking to people like yourself on this podcast. And, you know, I think you can eloquently speak to this too, because meant you could say the quintessential, the typical English football fan versus the typical American sports fan could be quite dogmatic in their beliefs of how sports should be structured, how they should be governed and whatnot. So I'd say going from the likes of Spain to a Belgium to an England must have an eye-opening for what was a young student at the time seeing how sport is kind of received in all these different countries.
1: Absolutely. You know, and, and I think as somebody who, um, you know, grew up with, with, with not a lot of financial means, never, we never really traveled anywhere as a family. I think the first time I got an airplane was spring break, sophomore year university. Uh, you know, first time I ever left the country was a road trip, some of my mates to, to Montreal. Um, so I always kind of had that global bug in me um, from a, just sort of just general cultural and, and lifestyle perspective and history and everything else, and, and, and definitely sport. And um, and that's actually one of the great things. I think sport's are one of the great levelers in the world. Like you can be anywhere, talking to anyone, of any sort of strata of society, whatever they do for an occupation, you know, taxi driver, you know, somebody working at a bar or a colleague in, in, in the business world, and you, you can always you know, have a great conversation, break down barriers by having an engaged conversation about sport and and football in particular. And I, you know, I have so many kind of anecdotal memories throughout the years in various parts of the world and, you know, having those kind of conversations. um, And that's what makes it so special.
0: And it's interesting because you speak there about breaking down preconceived barriers You know, I'd I'd imagine even in most imaginative young mind couldn't have begun to foresaw the role in which you view today. And I imagine it's a role which can be quite broad. Indeed, it is spread out over a multitude of industries such as health, life sciences, tech, and sport. How would you best describe that role, Richard?
1: Um, Well, in terms of the remit, so getting to kind of restate title, so I'm, I'm head of capital investment Um, for the UK government in North America. So, you know, what does that mean? It means I'm working with the world's major private investors. So across all kind of relevant categories, private equity firms, venture capital firms, uh, real estate investment trusts, public sector pension funds, um, university endowments, insurance companies, and so on to promote and support the deployment of capital into sectors of the UK economy and society that are of utmost strategic significance and kind of in line with government priorities. So, right, so you you mentioned a few, it spans things like kind of the key industries of the 21st century, like life sciences and and deep tech, um, but also things like renewable energy, critical infrastructure, and affordable housing and so on and sport because the reality is that sport is one of the most globally prominent and successful sectors of the UK economy and you know predominantly driven by by football and so um kind of you know the mandate is kind of driven i think by I think sort of two kind of overarching objectives. And one, of course, is to continue to support the um, prosperity and growth of the sector, but at the same time, to to also try to drive and support the establishment of a much more um solid footing of long-term financial sustainability for sport. and you know how how you know, so you say okay, what's what's the role for for government in, in that and um, I think it's, I think it's it's like two ways and kind of one's kind of sort of a carrot and one's in a way kind of a stick um, but both with I think with the same sort of positive intent and the first one of course is is to attract world class investors and 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 not just you know deep pools of capital that are going to you know, help to support short-term cash flow requirements of, of, of the clubs. Um, but also investors that bring kind of deep management expertise and broad global networks that will allow the clubs to critically unlock and diversify new sources of of, of revenue growth, which are absolutely fundamental to the kind of long-term financial sustainability of, of, of the sport. And as government as as we're now starting to potentially intervene in in, in probably in, in a in a more bold way than pretty much sort of any other free market government I think has ever done in the history of sport through the, the potential establishment of an independent regulator for football. Um, you know, at the same time, we need to ensure that whatever regulations are put in place, that it does nothing to impede our ability to continue to attract the world's best talent into English football, I think, you know, both in the boardroom and, and on the pitch, because those are really the, the keys to its success
0: been quite illuminating to see how this whole movement has unfolded Richard and I'm sure as you know more than most you know it's been quite prevalent over the past few years and for the purposes of discussion of this discussion well of course narrow it down to football but the amount of U.S. investors in English football namely the Premier League now where both I heard you speak about before you know up to 50% if not more now of Premier League clubs have U.S. business interests the obvious kind of commercial upside and whatnot what are some of the re- or what are some of the reasons as to why these investors are incentivized to invest in the english game
1: um well i mean i think again it starts of course from you know a, having a um very successful and attractive asset right so um the premier league is the most watched sports league in the world full stop any sport any country anywhere um, and so you know whilst it's the games are being played on a stage in England, it's a global audience right and and every single week um, your your asset is getting exposure to hundreds of millions of consumers in pretty much every country in the world, you know, ac- across you know developed economies and developing economies. And these are all potential consumers um, for you to be able to grow and diversify your revenue. And 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 so as a result, I mean it's it's unsurprising that the Premier League is in terms of revenue generation, is the, is the number one football league in the world, by by far, and um, and even the championship. So you know the second tier down, I think is the number six in terms of re- revenue generation across the world. So more than the top leagues elsewhere in Europe. So more than the top leagues in you know Holland, Belgium, Portugal, Turkey, etc. More than uh, the league in Mexico, or any other leagues in Latin America, or or, or MLS, um, and investors, of course, are looking for ways to to um, generate unrealized value, and and I think that there's the, there's kind of that um, halo effect, right? In that you have the most entertaining product. Why? Because you're attracting. The world's best talent on the pitch, and and of course that that hasn't always been the case, right? If you go back to the late eighties, early nineties, it was Syria and in, in Italy that attracted the world's best playing talent. I'm not so sure if they attracted the world's best investors or the, the, the best talent in the boardroom. Um, then in the early part of the twenty first century, it was La Liga in Spain, but it, it is the Premier League now, you know, at the at the forefront and, and absolutely running away with it. And, and, and not only, you know, do we have the most entertaining product on the pitch, but we also have some of the most iconic brands in, in world sport, not just in football. And, and of course there are the other historical ones like Manchester United, Liverpool Arsenal, but obviously of course, you know, Chelsea, Manchester City, given the exposure that they've had um, basis of their periods of, of long-term continued success and, but even clubs like, you know, Fulham, Burnley, Bournemouth, Aston Villa, are still getting that same degree of exposure every week, um, and, and I think that's, and the asset values, of course, are are lower than some of the other clubs that I mentioned, and and so they have the ability to kind of have lower entry cost, and still be able to take advantage of that um that revenue generation upside um, and I think you know at at a macro level, you know the UK also is a one of the world's largest economies. so we have a huge domestic economy, um, one of the world's leading democracies and a strong rule of law and particularly um, institutional investors have a great familiarity with 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 the market most of them have, offices in London and fairly substantial presence in the UK. So it, it's very easy for them to um to make commitments to English football, I think, versus 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 other leagues. And the fact that it's in English, I think, you know, also, I think also helps a lot, especially from a from an American investor perspective. And you know, and 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 I think if you if you compare them to say, some of the other emerging destinations for um, investment in sport. I think what what we have in England means a lot, and that is kind of tradition and history, right? If you're one of the world's top players, you want to be playing at Old Trafford and Anfield, you know, in Wembley. You want to be participating in, in competitions like the FA Cup. You know you don't want to be playing in a half empty stadium in the desert and 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 it's not just also even a handful of clubs right so you know part of the problem in the other european leagues is I mean they're basically to use an economic term I mean they're oligopolies right I mean how many years have Bayern Munich won Bundesliga in a row was it now 11, 12? I've lost count um you know PSG in France there's always been the duopoly in spain but there's such a so much more parity in england and also a lot more depth i mean you go to a match in 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 the football league so in the lower divisions and you're still getting crowds of 20 30 in some cases forty thousand. so you know out drawing top leagues elsewhere in europe and and that's why players are attracted to come there it's not just the money and and that's why I think investors like to be seen, you know, to be kind of part of that of that ecosystem. Um, so I think much more than than some of the other emerging destinations.
0: And I think it's suffice to say it's not only the world's best players that want to compete in the Premier League, it's also the world's leading investors. And of course, you deal with a lot, an awful lot of them that come to the UK. And by product of the economies of scale that they bring is obviously, you know, world-class managerial practices. And it's always a conundrum, isn't it, in English football, Richard, as you know best, in terms of marrying off the pitch with what happens on it. Um, In recent years, how much or how have these executives have had to kind of tap into that extent acknowledge and leverage those best practices to essentially... Grow what's happening on the pitch and often?
1: yeah th- that's a great question and and I, and I do think and I'll be careful in this one I do think that there are the areas that you specifically mentioned are are, are probably areas where um the the, the 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 major professional leagues in the. US um, have been a lot more advanced than um than 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 kind of the major football leagues in in Europe, where you know, the sport just is what it is organically, right and and it's always going to command tremendous interest and attention of. Supporters, consumers, brands who want to advertise media who want to, to 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 cover it um the I think there are so in a way it's kind of i mean especially if you want to go way back I and mean, if you think about the the utter contempt that owners in the past had for their supporters I mean it was very, it was very much in, rooted in the in the old class system you know we just you know herded it into, into standing pens behind the goal and no um you know uh, uh element of, of of duty of care with regards to health and safety never mind the the fan experience but the world has changed right and um people have so many more options and um sadly shorter attention spans and and without wanting to generalize I, I, you know particularly more so in 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 younger generations and so the competition is just not about um what happens on the pitch, but it you're competing against other forms of entertainment and other activities from a leisure perspective that that that, that take people's that take people's time and, and um and I think that so much more emphasis needs to be placed in those areas. Um and if you look at um Financial statement of a of a football club, I mean, there's there's basically three you know, critical drivers, right? So, the main source of revenue is is broadcast revenue. Um, the main source of cost is player salaries, and the biggest value asset that you own is is the stadium and the land that it sits on. And and all three of those areas, I think, we're the latest wave of investors are spending the most time energy and effort focusing on and i think for good for good reason right so i mean on the on the broadcast side um, i think we all can see like in real time the kind of continued disruption and the accelerated decline of traditional linear broadcasters I and mean, obviously the, the disruption is coming from technology It's coming from the changing demographics of of, of the audience. Um, Now, in spite of that, um, the value of the latest um, UK domestic TV deal for the Premier League was its biggest ever. Um, I I think it's the same as well for the four major leagues in, in North America. Why? Because even given all of those other options, live sports still commands the greatest television audiences throughout the world and therefore are attracting the greatest value for advertisers and then gives the broadcasters you know more incentive to invest more and then it gives them the the rights holders um greater greater stream of revenue um but that's not the case everywhere um in france league one you know has had a a decrease in the value of their latest television contract versus the previous one. I I think it's the same with Serie A and Italy. And so the battle for international streaming rights is going to get more and more intensive. And I think just even in general, the kind of shift um, to streaming both domestically and, and internationally is going to create a much bigger high for the rights holders at top line. Now that's fantastic, Um, but then if we start talking about um, the kind of continued prosperity and financial sustainability of the sport, the cost structure also needs to be addressed in a different way than it has in the past. So in the Premier League, the average ratio of, of player salaries to top line revenue is 70%. Um, Tottenham are best in class at 40%, but I mean, they are really an outlier. In the championship, it is over 100%. So for every pound of revenue they bring in the door, more than that is going out the door in player salaries. Now, I cannot think of a more dysfunctional core economic model. I cannot think of another industry anywhere that... Pays more in employee salaries than they generate in revenue. Um, a hard a hard salary cap, you know, I'll across North America is going to be extremely difficult, I think, to to implement because of the global playing field. It's it, it, and that's I think one of the things that has come out of the consultation on the uh, creation of the independent regulator is that you know we can't do things in England in isolation because then we lose that global competitiveness but i but i do think that 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 football needs to do more than than financial fair play I, which i the way it's structured today um i think is only entrenching the disparity in in wealth from the haves between the haves and the have-nots and and as a result as we were just talking about earlier in terms of results on the pitch and the standings and the tables, you know, a less a less competitive product. So I think that the, the new the new wave of investors, I think, understand all of that. All of those um, represent potential areas to kind of unlock value. So, like I mentioned, sort of you know the biggest asset being stadiums and the real estate they sit on. Again, that's another area where. North America is 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 way far advanced to to than what is, uh, has traditionally been the case in in the UK and and Europe in terms of optimizing that asset, so generating more match day revenue, whether it's kind of more corporate hospitality, more premium seating, better food and drink options, merchandising, all that, and 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 also greater utilization of, of the asset on non match days through hosting events and conferences and having retail tenants on your property and hospitality on
0: property and so on. And And of course, Richard, we were just speaking about obviously the upgrades being made off the pitch, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of what really is a change in investment landscape. And it's very dynamic. You spoke about the introduction of the independent regulator and evidently a huge part of your own remit now is the education piece and you know for me it's it's interesting in prep for this podcast i was listening to you in a previous one speak about you have some of these investors coming from the nfl which is akin to socialism for billionaires to the premier league that is quote-unquote endless capitalism um to aid and to educate these big wily investors in their strategic decision making what would you say is the one kind of Key thing that seems to be overlooked continuously?
1: Um, Well, I I think there's no reason why any of these sophisticated investors um, shouldn't be sufficiently well versed in the very different um, structure and dynamics of. English football versus North American sport, whether they are existing owners or not in in North American sport, right? Because if you think about, you know, if you're talking about the world's largest private equity firms, um, or even you know their their senior partners that leave lead the firms, um, you know, major venture capital firms and pension funds and so on. I mean, they're investing. In a very um, broad diversified portfolio of asset types across a very broad and diversified spectrum of industry verticals, right? so um and across you know multiple geographies throughout the world, right. So this is what they do for a living, right? And they Um, you know, if they're going to be investing in a a port in Colombia or a high-speed rail network in in China or residential housing in Scotland, they need to do their homework, right? They need to do their due diligence on, on the sector, on government policy and strategy, on the regulatory environment, on the dynamics, on the competitive landscape, and so on, right? But it's really interesting how in a, in, a, in an industry sector like sport, they just, in a way, I, I'm not going to say, like, they kind of get, in a way, kind of almost carried away with the emotion of it, right? So it's, you know, it's a very, very different investment, right? You know, if you're going to invest in a port in Colombia, you know, provided you've got sufficient experience in, in running a port, you know, you should do well, and provided you made... The right investment decision up front, and you're investing in an economy where the regulatory environment is conducive to the proper, prop, profitable operation of that, and you can and they're on constraints and you've got a competitive advantage and you can grow, you should be successful. Um, with football, I mean, you're investing in an asset where there's an element that you can't control, and that is, you know, 22 players on the pitch, you know, and, and and trying and trying to win matches. And I think sometimes they get um, either kind of say too emotional about it or too complacent about it and, and kind of make um, the, the false assumption that it's what worked in North America is going to work in England. And what works in the NFL or the NBA or the NHL is gonna work in the Premier League or in the championship. And, but there are so many I mean, absolutely fundamental um, differences in that structure, right? So, again, to kind of bring it back to investing in other other asset types and in, in other verticals, I mean, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't invest in high-speed rail in China without knowing, you know, kind of what the economics are and what the regulatory environment is and what the government's position on it and what the risks are and where the potential upside is. But in football, in many cases, they don't, right? And so, um, and they—I'm sure they know, obviously, basic things, right? They know that um, it's not a; these aren't franchises, right? They are—they are clubs. Um, that their, um, their, their, their existence and is. Um, and they and which league they're playing in is is hundred percent dependent upon um the performance on the pitch, right? it is it is a complete meritocracy. um there's no promotion and relegation. I think they understand that because that kind of grabs the headlines. but the kind of but then below that, like, um you don't have salary cap. Um, you don't, ha- you have, you don't have collective bargaining with players unions and you, uh, and you set an agreement and that's in place for the, you know, a term of whatever for five years and brings that level of stability. You don't have that, um, the global, um, dimension of the sport. So if you are the, one of the world's best basketball players the only league you're ever going to play in or want to play in is the NBA if you're one of the world's best hockey players you're only going to want to play in the NHL if you're one of the best world's best footballers you have limitless options basically of of where you play so you know how you how they manage that I think is is a bit of a shocker in some cases for them Um, the portability of clubs of course is 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 a huge one right you know because in the the in, in the North American leagues where, you, where the leagues themselves are run by the owners for the benefit of the owners. Um, they're being led by a commissioner who is hired by the owners to look after the best interests of the owners and so that they make the most money that they possibly can. Um, you know, they don't want competition, right? They, you know, in, in, in most leagues, a, a core element of that is geographic exclusivity. So you don't want somebody else encroaching in... on your territory. Compare that to London, for example, where you have 15 professional clubs in just in the top four leagues of, of, of the pyramid. Um, and, and, and so, you know, that's an element of competition for, um, for revenue generation as well as for playing talent that I think is 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 alien to them. Um, the clubs own their stadia in in England for the most part, um, with a couple of examples of again reasons why um, we're looking to create the independent regulator. Um, in the in North America, in many cases, it's underwritten by um, taxpayer money. And because um, the owners, you know, basically have all the leverage, they can, in effect, blackmail local government to say, um, unless you fork over taxpayer money to build a new stadium, I'm just gonna pack up the club and move it somewhere else where they'll do that for me. And, And of course, that can't happen in in England. So, and so, I mean, there's a lot of things that I think they don't realize when they start kind of expressing an interest in, in wanting to invest and, and so I think it's kind of incumbent upon us government and, and I and I think me, particularly when I'm engaging with these investors to kind of start by educating them on, on the differences so that they have a better understanding about, you know, what they're potentially getting
0: into it's very, very interesting, and it can make nearly make the most wisest men incandescent at times as to how the allure of the Premier League carrot always availed or prevails over over the Premier League stick. And sometimes the emotion, you know, makes people run away and do some crazy things, such as buying more than one club. And um, you know, it's estimated nowadays that there's over two hundred and fifty clubs worldwide that are all part of MCOs. Inevitably, which will raise governance concerns.
1: Indeed. Um, And, you know, and and you, so I mean, I think in terms of why we're seeing an explosion of them, um, I think from both a football operations perspective as well as from a um, financial perspective, um, there are a lot of um, attractive elements. Of owning a multi club portfolio, right? So, on the on the football operation side, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that the most valuable asset that, that that a club has on their books is the stadium and 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 the real estate that it sits on, but their other most valuable assets, of course, um, are their players, and um, and having a multi club. Uh, portfolio expands the opportunity from a player development perspective right so clubs can 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 invest in um bringing in more young talent you know either through um purchasing them or bringing them through their academies and you know rather than having them you know as squads Member 23 or 24 and spending most of their time sitting on the bench or, or up in the stands and not developing, you know, being able to um, move them to one of the other clubs in the portfolio, either lower down the pyramid or in an, in in another country, at least gives them you know quality playing time in a competitive league and 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 helps to facilitate their their ongoing development. And in many cases, you know, they can. Wind up bringing them back to the parent club, or if not, selling them on. In most cases, for a profit. So, from a football perspective and from a financial perspective, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Now, from a a governance perspective, it's it's going to get very very tricky, right? And we've started to see the first instances of that when you have clubs from the same ownership group playing each other in European competition. And um and the big difference, of course, and you know, we've been kind of joking about um investors, you know, get, getting stars in their eyes when 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 they look to invest in football. Um, but but part of the reason why um football supporters as consumers are so um why that demand is so inelastic, right? We you know, we you can change your name, you can change your nationality, you can change your spouse, your gender, your nose, anything, pretty much anything, but you can't change your football club, right? Um, and part of the reason that it that it's so it's so sticky is because of that kind of tribal competitiveness that we have um as humans. And 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 that's what differentiates football from other forms of entertainment, is you don't know the outcome, right? You're not going to you know, see a concert where you know the lyrics to the songs and pretty much you know how the song's gonna end. Um if if there's even a, a suspicion that the result is you know not, not completely above above board and that, you know, owners have a conflict of interest and can make personnel decisions that are going to influence the result or give the perception that it's going to influence results. I mean, I think that is a big issue. And the preponderance of this happening is even going to be more so as you start to see some of these multi-ownership groups, you know, expand more broadly geographically. And at the same time, you also have expanding international club competitions like Club World Cup, for example, where again, you can reasonably foresee instances where um, teams within the same ownership group are going to be qualifying for what FIFA are trying to establish as the kind of premier Club competition in world football, and that that the time to address that is is, is I think is rapidly is rapidly uh, approaching.
0: And it's interesting because we speak about you know very stuff that's quite pertinent and it's changing investment landscape as we know it. Um, when we speak about certainty, we must also evaluate the uncertainty that is European Super League that we thought was actually. Dead and buried after their announcement in December. However, according to Spanish newspapers last night, it looks like it could be back on the cards indeed. And inevitably that factors into your field too, Richard, because it would evoke some potential disruption that could bring an end to English football as we know it. Um to your best knowledge and the investors that you're dealing with on a daily basis to what extent are they accurately assessing this risk
1: well okay so i'm i'll i'll actually start with the government line on this right so the the potential creation of of an independent regulator for football actually arose from a fan led review that was commissioned by the uk government a few years ago you know, coming out of out of the, the pandemic and and most importantly the the potential creation of the European Super League and the tremendous backlash that that generated, and so um, one of the core elements of the independent regulator's mandate will be to prohibit English clubs from joining breakaway competitions and and i think that is is a um component where there is I, I would say almost unanimity of support across all key stakeholders um within within the industry in in the in england um and i and i would say that i mean maybe it wasn't initially but i would say also including the owners of the clubs that you know initially were you know potentially going to be part of that i mean i think that was a, a, a cold hard lesson that they experienced when they saw the the kind of depth of the passion of the of the of the um kind of abhorrence to this um because you know unlike in in the us you know where you don't have promotion, relegation, where you don't have international club competitions, whereas, as I mentioned earlier, your only right to be there is based upon a meritocratic system that you're good enough to qualify to be in it. Um, and, you know, yes, that that brings an element of, of, of additional risk. Um, I mean, for the and, and for those that are that are potentially um, in in danger of relegation. I mean, that that has other, I think, ramifications to way the economics of English football are structured. So, you know, part of the reason um, that that you have, you know, what called parachute payments and have have been in place for some time, is to try to cushion the impact of dropping that considerable drop from from the Premier League to the Championship. Now, what that I think is inadvertently um, resulted in is kind of a tranche of you know so-called yo-yo clubs who um are cushioned by those parachute payments when they go down to the championship. And therefore, there's a there's actually now probably a, a greater disparity in the financial wherewithal of the yo-yo clubs compared to the rest of the championship clubs versus, say, the drop from the Premier League to the championship. And so another part of the potential mandate of the regulator could be to actually intervene and um, arbitrate a settlement on greater revenue share between the Premier League and and the Football League. to ensure that 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 gulf doesn't doesn't grow. Because as I mentioned earlier, one of the great things that I think differentiates English football versus leagues in other countries is is the depth of um, quality and the um, parity on, on the pitch, which makes for a more exciting competition. So yeah, you can mention, yeah, of course, there was the ruling by the European Court of Justice back at the end of November. we reasonably say that the european super league is is back on the table i mean i'll you know what did alexander Seferin say like you know good luck you know i look forward to watching a league of two clubs um and so i think it is i mean you can under if you are real madrid barcelona juventus bayern munich paris saint-germain you can understand why there would be appetite for it you could argue that De facto, the Premier League has in, in essence become the European Super League. It is the, the league that's attracting the the most um, investment, and it's the league that's generating the greatest audiences and the most followers and attracting the most talent. So I, I think the imperative to do so from the English clubs is not there. And I also think that, that people who buy into the English, English, English football understand the benefit of of the way our system works. So I don't see that necessarily as being the biggest threat. I, mean, I think the, the biggest threat, as I mentioned, I think is that England becomes there is less less competitive than it historically has been in that gulf between the haves and the have-nots continues to grow and and I think that that's really you know one of the key reasons why there is such support and amazingly in an incredibly polarized political environment this is one the 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 football governance bill looks to be one piece of legislation that has strong cross party support so I would I am pos- I am I'm very positive that that it will become law in in the lifetime of of this current parliament, um, and because so we have something that's that's incredibly valuable on a global basis, and I think it's 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 imperative that all the key stakeholders in that equation understand our kind of collective responsibility to preserve that.
0: It's absolutely fascinating, and you know I can imagine aside from your general role and responsibilities. How exciting a day today must be. In fact, kind of with one eye in the past, another eye in the present, and indeed, you know, casting a vision towards the future. Uh, Richard, what trends or what changes to investment dynamics potentially excite you that we should all keep an eye upon on in the forthcoming years?
1: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, in and of itself, um, the kind of changing complexion of investor types into football is incredibly exciting, right? So, I mean, the past five years has probably seen the most dramatic evolution in football's history, right? So for the first 100 years, it was based, all the teams were basically owned by local benefactors who, you know, typically were, you know, one of the wealthiest individuals in a particular town or city, and often they also owned the company that was the biggest employer and they were lifelong supporters of the club and owning the local football club was a means of kind of investing back in the community and you know somewhat altruistic maybe somewhat egotistical but whatever i mean that it was it was you know very local right then you know 2003 when when uh, roman agramovich bought chelsea i mean that was probably the most significant watershed in terms of um, the development of and, and and the evolution of the economics of, of, of football, and particularly in England, because I mean, obviously, it, it, it changed. I think two things dramatically. One, you know, the global aspect of it. You know, you now had a Russian oligarch owning a club in central London. Um, and it also, you know, it, it it signals the shift from millionaire owners to billionaire owners. And, you know, from high net worth individuals to ultra high net worth individuals or ultra, ultra high net worth individuals. And that kind of raised the stakes quite considerably um, in terms of the investment required to succeed. And, but, as, but the clubs, you know, were basically 100% dependent upon Um, that one individual and their willingness to continue to pump money in because um, they generally lose money from a a P&L perspective in terms of the operations of the club. And also, you know, where that money came from. In many cases, it was, you know, quite dubious sources. And, 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 there are so many clubs where, where you know it didn't it didn't end very well, and so the shift thing to institutional investors, you know, um, I think raises the level of professionalism and 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 overall quality. So you know, if we're talking about private equity, you know, they they are also backed by other institutional investors as limited partners, you know, be they endowments or foundations or insurance companies or pension funds, the the purpose-built investment funds, which in most cases, again, are a consortium of individuals from the private equity world, in some cases, some high-profile celebrities. Um, and even they are backed by limited partners or institutional investors. Um, the emergence of multinational corporations getting involved in, in, in football ownership, You know, Red Bull being obviously the, the great example of that, but there are others. And, and, of course, the sovereign wealth fund. So I think, you know, that changing complexion and I, and especially as I've, I've spent my entire career um working and investing across borders um that increased globalization i i, I find very exciting and especially you know not we talked earlier about the multi-club ownership uh, groups but you also now have a big spike in multi-sport ownership groups and you know particularly the ones from the us who are owners of NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League league Baseball teams. I I mean, I personally find that exciting. Um, The increased focus on women's football, I think is another area of excitement. Um, And I I firmly believe that investors see that. Um, And there is a a huge spike in interest um, of institutional investors wanting um, to get involved in, in in women's football. And you know, and, and it's being evidenced um, you know, not just by the changes on the ownership side, but the increased professionalism of, of, of the game um, and the you know, exponential growth in um, its revenue generation. I mean just look at the, the NWSL here in in the US, um, they just signed a new television contract for $250 million. Four years ago, it was four and a half million. I mean that's a fifty x increase in in the values, which is why you know I mentioned earlier that kind of like these new owners are focused really on three areas in terms of you know generating revenue. um which I think is I think is really exciting.
0: I think it's a fascinating fascinating landscape, rather Richard to be a part of. And yeah, look. Hopefully we can have you on again for round two because it seems to be you know the news and the landscape seems to be co-emerging and changing, and what was a monthly basis now a weekly if not daily basis with the news that kind of we're endeavoured to on a day-to-day basis. But anyways, well, geez. yes. So uh, Richard, it's an absolute pleasure to host you on the show today. But for those people that are even that slightly bit inspired, listening to you speak about your story so eloquently today, and indeed excited to see what the future football economics holds what would be your one bit of key advice for them to be
1: um i mean in my experience um i think as human beings we always tend to excel in areas that excite us and if you have a passion for sports and you have an acumen for business. The the industry itself offers um you know such a, a huge array of career development opportunities. I mean, we started up conversation talking about soccer X, and you know, you can get involved in the management side, you can get involved in the investment side, you can get involved in coaching, you can get involved in sports science, you can get involved in sports tech, you can get involved in architectural design. I mean, there are so many ways that you can combine, you know, from a functional perspective, what you're good at and what you're interested in at with, with your passion for wanting to spend your days within the world of sport. I mean, I, my, my nephew um, is uh, finishing up at Boston College, And, you know, he's looking to get into sports analytics and, you know, is studying that at a major university. And I mean, if if only I had the opportunity, you know, 35 years ago to kind of combine um, my my passion for sport with with my interest in business. but I, I just think that the area is, is is booming so much, and I think that you know you you can do so, and like with anything, you have to be incredibly proactive. I think in 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 my career, um, the the overwhelming and maybe I'm a it, well again okay, in some ways a bad example. I mean, I thirty plus years, I've worked um, for four employers in total, um, so very baby boomerish. Um, and but for very diverse industry sectors, kind of oil and gas, and then to financial services, and then to employee benefits, and then and then into government. Um, none of that would wouldn't have happened. None of that would have happened. Would, oh, I'm getting my double negative. None of that would have happened um, if um, I hadn't kind of been proactive to identify, kind of pursue. Um, and even self-generate my own opportunities, and 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 to kind of run with it. So, you know, if, if you're starting out at the beginning of your career trajectory, and you have an opportunity to work in sport, even if it's something that you know isn't your ultimate desired point of arrival, right? If you have to start in, you know, season ticket sales or media relations or whatever or, you know, being a kit man, do it, get in, and learn the business, build your network, build your expertise, grow your your, your, your relationships, and, and take the initiative to, to make things happen.
0: Absolutely fantastic. Richard Albert, it was an absolute pleasure to host you on the show today.
1: Connor, pleasure as always, um, anytime, um, love to do it. can talk about this for hours, as, as I know you could as well.